conclusion of our series in James, and I hope that you've enjoyed it, and we'll have a chance to give some response in a little while. Um, one of the great things about chapter 4 is that it's sort of a hub chapter, and so a lot of the spokes from previous weeks come out in this chapter, so we'll get a chance to review um, and remind you of some of the things that we've learned and also co cover some new territory. But it also occurred to me um, that James is such a practical book that affects every area of our lives, and I was reminded of our, our SALT acronym. If we can just bring up our, our first slide. So those of you who have attended um, SALT, during uh, August, um, we came up with this acronym of speak, act, live, and think like Christ. And so last week, Kotze spoke to us about the tongue, um, our speech, the way that we are to speak as God's children. A couple weeks ago, Jaunty spoke to us about putting our faith into action. And so we have that element of it. And today, we're really going to be looking at our attitude. Um, but this really encompasses the way that we think, um, the attitude of our heart, and ultimately the way that we live before God and before other people. So that kind of gives us a chance to round out those live and think elements of salt. In other words, James teaches that um, Christian maturity should impact every area of our lives. And for those of you who like a nice, simple way of kind of hanging everything, what's this talk about today? Um, James gives us right in the middle um, of this chapter um, what it's really all about. So if we can just bring up our, our next slide. Um, it has to do with this attitude of um, humble maturity. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's really what today is going to be all about. Um, these two battling attitudes, that of pride and humility and the fact that God favors and lifts up the humble, um, but God um, despises or kind of pushes down um, the proud. It's, it's this great sort of irony. So that's what today is about. We're going to be looking at the problem of pride, and then we're going to be looking at the unusual um, antidote of, um, of humility. So the problem of pride... Let me just read to you those, some of those early verses um, again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. You kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel, you fight. You don't, ha you don't, don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone chooses to be, um, to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures say without reason that he, um, he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? I just want to talk about um, those verses a little bit because, um, first of all, a lot of the the Bible scholars who, who make comment on this passage say, so James is writing this as a practical letter. Um, was this group of people, was this church really struggling with killing, you know, stealing, with uh, adultery? Were these things all happening in the church? And, and possibly so. But there's two things that I want to point out about this. Um, first of all, if you read the language that 
flows through this chapter very quickly, um, if we can just bring up the next slide, you get this sense that James is referring back to the Ten Commandments, and especially the second half of the Ten Commandments that talk about the way that we treat one another. You kill, um, you covet, you adulterous people, um, you slander, you dishonor, you know, you want and you take what doesn't belong to you, and you immediately comes to mind, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, you know, don't, don't speak falsely, don't dishonor, and this is really what he's bringing about. Now, keep in mind that this particular church that James wrote to in the first place, which benefits the whole church, was written to a group of Hebrew people. What's unique about the Hebrew people? Well, they made a covenant to be God's chosen nation. So a little bit different to Australia, which sees itself as a secular democracy, and we, we have all of these problems within our society. But we kind of say, well, we can do morally whatever we want. You know, we don't sit under the scriptures. I mean, that's the way the average person would see it. We have no deal with God. But for the Jews, um, for all of the Jews, they had made a covenant with God to keep these commandments. And so James is really reminding them as Jewish people, God didn't give you these commandments because you didn't need to hear them. All of these st things still exist within your society and within your people group, just as all of these things exist within Australia today. But for you particularly, you made a deal with God not to do these things. But the bigger thing that he is trying to say then is that where does all of this stuff begin? And I think the real problem that he's addressing in this church is one that exists in every church. And it just appears in those first couple of verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You get this idea of this battling, quarreling, oppositional kind of attitude that starts in the human heart. And if it is left unchecked, then it just boils over into other things. This is what Jesus said. You know, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You know, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed the act of murder. The seeds of these things begin with this attitude of pride. And Satan's got this brilliant plan. If I can just get everyone to say that I am first and I am number one, we've often said that the middle letter of sin is a great big I. <laughs> That's what sin is. I want what I want. I don't care what you want. I just want you to give me what is due to me. And if Satan can get everyone to think that way, then guess what? We've got wars, we've got murder, we've got theft, because you don't care about anyone else. You've already decided, I just want what I want. But of course, what Jesus said, the great commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. If you can get everyone to think of the other person first, um, to love as God has loved you, well, then the problem all goes away. Because instead of saying, I want what I want, I, you say, how can I help you? How can I be of service to you? And everything just changes. So that's really what James is addressing here. He's addressing the attitude of our hearts. And so then if we just want to go on to our, our next slide, um, 
if you, this kind of just reminds us a little bit of um, some territory that was already covered for us last week. And you can kind of see how the, the logic flows on. So let me just read to you uh, just a bit of a reminder from last week. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and peace-loving, it's considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial, it's sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's wonderful. I don't even need to preach that part of it. I mean, James has already done it for us. He just spelled out practically the attitude um, that is the antidote to that sort of, of pride. But I love the fact that he talks about these two types of wisdom, and we need to get this into our heads and into our hearts. You think, well, how could that wrong stuff be considered wisdom? But it's, it's the wisdom of this age. How do you get ahead in the world? Well, whatever it takes for you to get ahead, that's what you should do, right? And, you know, Kotze kind of mentioned that thing last week. You know, do you lie on your resume? Well, everyone beefs up their resume, right? You, you, you puff yourself up. How, you, know, you make sure that at work I get noticed for things that maybe other people may have done. You put yourself forward. You might belittle others. We, we talk down and we gossip about the people that we don't like, and then we talk about how we are actually the ones who are right and all of these things. Because that's what you do. You, you do what you need to do to get ahead. There's only so much money in the world, and if you don't take it, someone else is going to take it for you. That's the wisdom of the world, right? Do whatever it takes to get ahead. Jesus says, I have a completely different kind of wisdom. And James wants to show us why this humble wisdom is actually the wisdom that works. It's the one that will fill you up, make you whole, make you mature, give you what you want. This, this won't work. And what he really wants to do now is to help us understand why. So if we can just go then to our next slide. Yes. He mentions the fact that one of the problems with pride is this issue with judgment. Um, when, when we put ourselves in this attitude of pride, then we become these sorts of evil judges. And I want us to go back to, to Genesis. It's um, the, the verse that's sitting there. The serpent says to Adam and Eve, go ahead and eat from the fruit. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good from evil. You yourselves will be the judge of good and evil. So one of the great problems with pride is that as soon as we push God out of the picture, who becomes judge of the world? We do. You decide. I mean, if you're offended, then surely the other person is wrong because you wouldn't have done the wrong thing, right? We, we always do what's right. It's the other person's problem. And this, this puts us in the seat of, of God. So who is actually the judge? Well, I am. 
and I will judge, and I will condemn, and I will slander, and I will speak against anyone who makes my life difficult for me. I don't need to consider, was I at fault? Was it my problem? Do I need to change? Because I'm the judge. I've put myself in the center of the universe, and everyone who makes life inconvenient for me is wrong. And again, once you can get the whole world convinced that they are the judge and they're in the judgment seat, then you can have wars, you can have relationship breakdowns, you have slander, and the world becomes this horrible place. So pride leads to false judgment, it leads to slander, it leads to discrimination. So then if we can just go to our next slide. Um, he also reminds us um, that we are supposed to make sure that we are people who continue to trust in God. That is our goal, that we are the ones who are to continue to trust in God. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city and spend the year there and carry out business and make some money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone knows then the good they ought to do um, and does not do it, for them that is sin. And so I've just put up this proverb, you know, it, it's a paraphrase. It basically says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. So it's, pride is not just demonstrated in the attitude that we have towards other people. It's demonstrated in our own attitude towards God. Can you imagine going and getting a new job, you know, and then going and saying to your boss, now look, I've taken on this job, and as of course of you know, it's now your job to pay me. Now let me just tell you the sort of work conditions that I need and, and what I really need. I would like to come in at this time during the day, and, and I probably need a little bit more money than what you've offered to me, and some of the things that you're asking me to do are not necessarily the things that I want to do, and so if you could just remove those things away, and, you know, and this is how you can make life good for me. I mean, how long would you have that job? then I want you to think about the way that we pray to God. God, you've given me this life, and here's what I need. You know, I need this much money. You know, there are these things in my way. I need you to remove these things from me. I need, you know, the problems taken away, and I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I just want life to go well for me. And if you do this, then you will be a good servant and that's who I need you to be. And it, it sounds pretty extreme, but often that is the way that we pray, right? God, if you're going to be a good God, let me tell you what I need. Here's how you can serve me. And he says, do you wonder why you don't get your prayers answered? Have you forgotten who God is? Do you want to have answers to your prayer? Well, then here's another way that you could pray, Lord, here I am, your servant. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I'm here. I'm here to serve you. Whatever obstacle you put in front of me, give me the strength to get through it. Any difficulty that I face, 
Give me the wisdom to work through it. Not my will, but your will be done. In other words, to pray like Christ. If we can just bring up our next slide. So I, I found this on you know, the internet. You, know, you have these prayer rules. So you don't pray with the wrong motives. Um, this kind of prayer is not asking in accordance with God's will, but in accordance with our will. But instead, next slide, not my will, but your will be done. We remember that Jesus Christ, Jesus God's Messiah, Jesus God's King, prayed this prayer to his own Father. I don't want to face what I have to face. I don't want to have to go and endure the shame and the pain of the cross. But ultimately, it's, it's not my will that I want to be done. It is your will that should be done. We talked about this um, very early on in the series. James refers to Jesus as our glorious Lord. And I mentioned to you that that's not just a throwaway line. You know, well, it's the Bible, so let's use this flowery language of the, our glorious Lord. He's, he's reminding us from the outset, you need to follow the pattern of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the, the great King, God's own Son. If you want to know what glory looks like, then let me show you. Jesus Christ, who shared the very nature of God, didn't consider holding on to that equality. Instead, he made himself a servant. He humbled himself and served humanity. He said, I didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve, and ultimately to give up my life as a ransom for all. And so when God looked at the life of his son, he said, this is the life that I want to lift up. Therefore, God said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. If you want to see what godliness looks like, what love looks like, what a true human life looks like, then look at the life of Jesus. He will be lifted up because no one ever loved like him. No one ever served like him. And no one ever showed the attitude of God like my son, Jesus. And so we take on the attitude of Christ. So, final, if we can just bring up our, our next slide. There's this comment um, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and does not do it, for them that is sin. But we could put this into the positive, couldn't we? What does real maturity look like? What does real godliness look like? It's those who see the opportunity to do what is right and what is good, and they take it up at every stage. So what I wanted to do is finish with, with this, because we will have a chance to respond, and I just wanted to get to give you a few examples to, um, to get us thinking, because one of the issues that I have with humility is I think we have the wrong idea of what humility is. I think that what we think humility is is, is being quiet, of just shrinking back in the corner and do nothing. But if Jesus is the ultimate picture of humility, did he just shrink back in the corner and remain quiet and do nothing? Um, I was talking to Chris about this one time. You know, we used to always joke how for a while there was a really big thing for rock stars to be humble. Michael Jackson was very humble because he said, I'm just, I just want to thank you so very much. I'm just very humble. Well, before he went and did his song with the big statue where the children danced around him and 
praised him as Messiah. And all of the, the divas, you know, the, the word that just literally means female goddesses, they, they did a lot of this, you know, and I'm just very humble. But they carried with them their entourage and they had big gold jewelry and they, you know, left their demands for what there needed to be in their hotel room. But as long as you went like this every now and then and you, you know, I'm, I'm very humble, right? That's, what, that's humility, right? That's the picture of humility. But God has a very different picture. I wanted to, to, to share three stories with you. Um, when I thought, who has been humble in your life? What have been the examples? Here, here are my top three, the, the first three that came to my mind. First of all, um, my youth leader, um, back from the time that I was about year seven. So there's a couple that, uh, that led our youth group and uh, the guy kind of did a lot of the teaching, but the woman was the pastor. She was like the mum who looked after us. And it occurred to me that you know, whenever I was down and I was being depressed or whatever, and she'd come up and she'd say, what's the matter? And I'd talk about how I was feeling down about myself or someone had said something bad to me and mean to me. And then she would always remind me She'd say, but Chad, you have done all of these things. And she would list out the things that I had done because she had been to all of my sporting things. She had watched all of my accomplishments. She had written them down. She had prayed for them. And then she would remind me of my gifts because she had noticed the things that I was able to do, the, the ways that God had gifted me. And then I realized it wasn't just me. It was every kid in the youth group. So here was this woman who was immensely talented. She was a great artist. She had all of these skills. And she's working with all of these silly little teenagers. And her attention is all on who are they? What are their needs? How can I build them up? How can I lift them up? And putting us above herself. The second one that came to my mind um, was my grandmother, who's, who's passed away then. But there was this story that just has always stuck in my mind, and in the mind of all of us in, in our family. As a very old woman, she was, had gone to the grocery store, and a much younger woman um, said to her, she was pushing her trolley along, oh, you're in front of my shelf. Could you just reach up on the shelf and grab that tin of beans for me? So my grandmother turned around to grab it, and the woman grabbed her purse out of the trolley and ran away. Now, my grandmother didn't have much money. She always lived kind of on the poverty line. And we heard about it, and we were furious. And we said, what did you do? And she said, well, I pushed my trolley back through, and I put away everything. And then I just went up to the people, and I said, thank you very much, nothing for me today. And I went out in the parking lot, and I prayed for this woman. <laughs> we said, what? You prayed for her? And she said, I just kept on thinking, how miserable must her life be? How poor must she be that she would need to steal from me? And she said, you know what the worst thing is? I didn't have much money in my purse. I couldn't help her very much, but I hope what she got will help her. And I couldn't get my head wrapped around it, but this is a person... See, we always had the great joke for this woman is if she had just said to, to my grandmother, can, you ha can I have whatever you have in your purse, she would have given it to her because she always put the needs of others before her own needs. The last one, and I can say this because Parissa's not here today, I told her I would tell this story, but I, I wanted to tell this one because I think, again, that idea of humility 
is always like the shrinking violet. But when Paris and I were working in another church back in the States, um, we went to take a bunch of our youth group kids to a nursing home. And uh, we first met with a couple of the nurses, and they said, now, this is kind of fellowship time for the people in the nursing home, and they're all in the common area, and you can just go and sit down with them and talk to them and ask them about their family and all of that. And they said, now, just the only thing is, there's a woman up the back, her name is Catherine, this was back in the days before there was any smoking laws. You see her because she's puffing her guts out and filling up the whole common area with her, her cigarette smoke. Don't go and talk to Catherine because she's mean and she will swear at you and just leave Catherine alone. So kids all take off and I look over to Prissa and I see her headed back to Catherine. I said, Prissa, where are you going? She goes, I'm speaking to Catherine. So she goes back to the table and she sits down right next to Catherine and I could hear from across the room in this almost like witchy, smoke-infested voice, go away. And so Parissa sat down next to her. So she yelled out louder, go away. And Parissa looked around and she said, I'm sorry, but it says common room here and I'm a common person, so I think I'll just stay right here. Thank you very much. My name's Parissa. What's your name? And she said, I don't want to talk to you. And she said, why not? The woman went on to say she's having a miserable day and Parissa said, well, tell me about it. She went on to complain about this and about that, and Parissa just sat there for an hour and listened to her tell about her life and how miserable it was, and she just kept on saying, I'm so sorry to hear that. That must be terrible for you. And finally, at the end, I look back, and there is Parissa, and she's got Catherine's hand clasped in hers, and with tears running down Catherine's face, she says, I, I want to pray for you. You've lived a hard life. I want to pray for you. And every week after that, Parissa went in to see Catherine, sometimes two and three times a week. And she did art with her, and she took her to music concerts, and she did all of these things. And I would sometimes look at this smile come over Catherine's face. And I, I just said to Parissa, how did that happen? <laughs> like, for me, that would never happen. If someone, I go to show someone some love, and they throw it back in my face, well, that's it for them. You know, they had their opportunity. And she said, because... I didn't grow up loving Jesus, and he pursued me vigorously. And I said no to Jesus over and over and over again, but he never said no to me. So when I see someone who I think they just need Jesus' love, I'll stay there and I'll plant myself there and I'll show it to them as long as the opportunity is there. That's what humility looks like in action. It's just simply putting the other before yourself and putting God's needs ahead of our own. We're going to have a chance to share our own responses once we share our, our song of reflection. I'll come back up and I'll lead us in that time.